Um, my name is Jack Lucas. I am currently serving as Leadership Development Director for the Illinois Baptist State Association. Um, I get to do that in a lot of ways. My favorite way is I get to do it through Next Generation Ministries, uh, which means I get, if you come to a Bible school clinic, uh, you're, you're likely to, I say that, and then I'm not going to be at the one in Mount Vernon in a couple of weeks, but uh, uh, normally I'm at the Bible school clinics. I get to work with student ministry and children's ministry. I've uh, been in a, a children's minister cohort with Melissa uh, and, and have been able to serve in that way, uh, but I've also been able to work with pastors, and that's how I got to know Jake um, we we were in a cohort, pastoral cohort together that met for a long time with a bunch of other uh, pastors, and I got to know Jake during that time. Appreciate him calling and giving me an opportunity. When when you go from pastoring and preaching um, twice a week and doing a Bible study on Wednesday night and you do denominational work, you're just thankful for the opportunities that you get to fill the pulpit. So thank you uh, for letting me be here today. We really appreciate it. Um, I am married. My wife, Misty, uh, her dad was actually the pastor at First Baptist Church in Harrisburg for 18 years before he moved to Mount Vernon and pastored up there. Um, so she is a, she is a preacher's kid. Um, and when, when I surrendered to the call to ministry, she said, I knew it was coming. She said, but I married you because you were nothing like my dad, and now you are my dad. And uh, so that was, that was a, a fun moment in our marriage. Um, she is the executive director of the Illinois Offices of the Madison Adoption Associates. Uh, she facilitates international adoptions, particularly in South America and Central America. Uh, and she, you can be praying for her. She will be in Bogota, Colombia next week for an entire week, and then she has to go to Ecuador in March. And so um, she travels a lot, so we're, we're always in prayer for safe travels at that point. Um, we have four children. Our oldest child, Jace, is 26 years old now. That feels hard to believe. Uh, but he's 26 years old now. He lives in Los Angeles, California, and is a senior uh, senior executive account director for the largest fashion marketing firm in the country. And you may be asking yourself, how does a boy from Dix, Illinois, uh, end up in fashion marketing in Los Angeles? He actually asked me that question. What did that? How did this happen? Uh, and I said, I don't know, except for the fact that Dix, Illinois, is the fashion capital of Illinois. You think I'm kidding. Jace is, is, like I said, there's nowhere for him to go. He's at the largest marketing firm in the country. Um, I've never seen this show, but how many of you have heard of a show called Say Yes to the Dress? Anybody? A few? There's a guy on there named Randy, apparently. He is a native of Dix, Illinois, graduated from Rome grade school, just like my son did. And I told him, I said, all I can tell you, son, is Dix is the fashion capital. So uh, he's out in L.A. Be praying for him. He is a part-time associate pastor at his church out there. Um, My next child, Brooks, is 25. Um, He was was 13 months younger than Jace. And uh, he'll say, I was a mistake. And we'll say, no, son, but you certainly were a surprise. Um, And so um, no mistake at all. But he is a... Gosh, he's a third-year PT student at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. He has his clinicals left, and then he'll be a physical therapist. And after multiple knee surgeries and shoulder injuries and all that, I don't tell the other kids, but he's going to be my favorite. Um, Dad's going to need him for sure. He is married to Amber, our only uh, only daughter-in-law. She is a first-year first-grade teacher out at, uh, at Bolivar, Missouri as well. My oldest daughter, Austin, is 21 years old, graduated a semester early from college in December with a psychology degree and uh, from Southwest Baptist, and she currently has moved back into our house, is getting ready to start grad school, and she is working as an adoption specialist for her mother uh, with Madison Adoption Associates as well, and 
she told me at one point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow in mom's footsteps. And I thought she was kidding, but uh, she literally is doing that right now. So uh, you can pray for me. She has a psychology degree, and my wife spent 30 years as a clinical psychotherapist. Uh, so I have had 30 years of, of therapy at this point. And so um, my youngest daughter, Angie, is 16 years old, and she is a sophomore at Auburn High School. We adopted her in 2019 from Bogota, Colombia. Her English is better than my Spanish by a long shot. Uh, she's doing great. She's an AB student, uh, which is phenomenal considering she's still translating things in her head as she goes. Uh, but you can pray for Angie. She is not a believer. Uh, she had a very bad experience in an IAPA in, in Bogota with some nuns who mistreated her. And she tends to associate that experience with Christianity. And so be praying for her. Her heart is softened. We have a lot of gospel conversations, and but she has not yet made a, a profession of faith. And so be praying for Miss Angie. Uh, she is a delight and a joy, but that is our concern and our prayer for her. Church, you're getting ready to go on a journey with me because it's a journey that I'm on. And I always told the church in Mount Vernon, you'll never wonder what's going on in my life because it will come out in, in the sermons that I preach. Um, this one's been an important one for me. For the last two or three years, I've been on a journey of, of rediscovery. And so in particular, today I want to talk about rediscovering God's Word, and this has been big in my life over the last year and a half. So I wanted to share a little bit about that with you. We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings chapter 22 and chapter 23, so keep your copy of God's Word open, or if you have it open on your device, also the, uh, the Scripture will be up on the screen as well. But we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 22 here in just a moment. There was a man named George Mueller who... Mueller was known for his strong faith, like one of the most faithful Christians that ever lived. But I want you to hear what Mueller said about himself. Um, and so let me read you this quote. It says, the first three years after my conversion, I neglected the word of God. But since then, I have began to search it diligently. And the blessing has been wonderful. I have read the Bible through here, this church, 100 times and always with increasing delight. I have read the Bible through not 100 times. Not anywhere near that. Can you imagine reading the Bible through? I wonder how many Christians could say they have read the Bible through 100 times. But even more astonishing than that statement was what he said next. Every time with increasing delight. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times that I read the Bible and delight is not the word that comes to mind. I'll hit a passage and the Holy Spirit brings conviction into my life and delight is not what I'm feeling in that moment. After, of course, after repentance occurs and, and, and the lessons that God teaches are learned, there's delight. But how many of us can say that? That we read the Bible through and with increasing delight. Most Christians will proclaim that they love the Word of God. And I think in our minds we do. I think, I think in our minds, we truly, honestly love the Word of God. We, we appreciate the bits and the pieces that we pick up uh, uh, through, a, through a Sunday school class or through VBS or, or through small group studies or for the, from the songs that we learned as kids. We, we appreciate those things. But how are our actions actually reflecting that? How much do our actions say that we love the Bible? For instance, do you read it outside of the church building? Do you read it when you're at something other than Sunday school or a Sunday morning uh, sermon or, or, or Wednesday night Bible study? How often are we actually picking up the Word of God outside of this building? 
Barna did a study. <clears throat> and in that study, the Barna group discovered that only 27% of Christians indicated that they read the Bible four or more times a week away from the church. Only 27%. Another 27% said they never read the Bible outside of the church. Now, these are not, these are not lost people that are being surveyed. These, these are church-going folks. Only 27% read the Bible away from the church four-plus times. 27% I, ne I never read the Bible away from the church. That means 73% of those who were polled said they read the Bible once a week or less outside of the church, and only 8% said they read it once a week. You see, church, our actions are indicating something different than what we want to believe about ourselves. But my question to you is, how can we truly know what God has for us, what He intends for us, if we're not in His Word? How can we have any idea what God has for us? We can't. And so my question this morning and my challenge to you is that maybe it's time that each and every one of us rediscover God's Word. And with that, we're going to look at one of my favorite Old Testament characters of all time. It's King Josiah. Now, Israel and Judah had a lot of bad kings, a lot of them. But King Josiah is not one of them. Josiah is one of the good guys. And so I want to hop into 2 Kings chapter 22 with you, beginning at verse 10. And let's, let's look at an experience that happened in the life of King Josiah. The Bible says this in verse 10. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the high priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, and when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now let's pause there a second. Maybe I should have given you some background information before this happened. At this time in Israel and in Judah, the, the treasury is kept in the temple. And so anytime the king has to make a payment, he has to send over to the temple. The high priest gets the payment together, and, and then they distribute the payment. So that's what's happened. The king has sent his secretary over to the temple to pick up the payment. When, they, when, when the, uh, the secretary gets there and gets the payment, the high priest says, hey, here's your payment, but you need to show this to the king, hands him the book of the law. Shaphan takes it back to the king and reads it in Josiah's presence, and Josiah is convicted. Immediately, he's exposed to the word of God, and he is immediately convicted. Church, because the scriptures are powerful. Josiah recognized something. He recognized that the nation for many years, for many years had neglected the Scripture, and because of that, they had no idea what was actually in the Scripture. They, they were totally unaware of the wrath of God that they were bringing upon themselves. And without a working knowledge of the Word of God, the people were simply incapable of living the way that God intended for them to live, and the nation was heading down a path of destruction. But when he was confronted with the truth of the word of the God, the word of God, their king became distraught. He was under great conviction about the state of his nation. You know what I fear, church? I fear that the church in America is in a similar plight and simply does not realize it. So many Christians have neglected the reading of the Bible that they don't really have any idea of what is contained in there. We rely upon what we hear in a weekly sermon. In church, you need to hear a weekly sermon. You need to come and you need to be a part of a corporate worship experience. You need to hear what God has laid upon the heart of your pastor. That's absolutely vital and important. 
But it can't be the only time you get into God's Word. We become, we become dependent upon a weekly sermon or a Sunday school class. And hear me, I think you should go to a Sunday school class. It's a place where you can sit and hear God's Word taught and ask your questions and receive answers. And who knows, God might even use you to answer someone else's question. You need to be a part of a Sunday school class. But it can't be the only time you open God's Word. You need to work at Vacation Bible School. I spent the last 20 years being the Vacation Bible School promoter for the state of Illinois. It's important. You need to do it. You, you need to teach God's Word. You need to study. You need to... And people say, well, I'm, I'm just the wreck guy. Well, the wreck guy can share the Word of God just like the guy teaching the Bible study. You need to do it, but it can't be... When you're prepping for vacation Bible school, it can't be the only time that you open the Word of God. We can't become reliant upon the church for all of our Bible study. We rely upon what we hear from childhood stories and songs. Can we pull up that next slide? And over time, we begin to formulate what we think the Bible says instead of what it really says. In that same research project by the Barna Group that we mentioned earlier, they found that only 38% of Christians polled could correctly state that this phrase, here's the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, cannot be found anywhere in the Bible. 42% thought it was a biblical quotation. Another 20% wasn't sure if it was in the Bible or not. And even when something is in the Scripture, Christians have seen, spent so little time in the Word that we often misquote it. Let me give you this one. Can we pull it up? <clears throat> Money is the root of all evil. I have heard that all my life. Haven't you? Right? I've seen it in print. You could buy it at Cracker Barrel on a plaque. Money is the root of all evil. But is that what the Bible actually says? Well, let's take a look. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. What the Bible actually says is, For the love of money, uh, love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That is not the same thing. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends who live their entire life on Facebook. Right? I know what they have for breakfast. I know what they have for lunch. I know they spend a half hour searching for their keys. They live their lives on social media. And inevitably, they will post a legitimate prayer request at some point, which I think is great. It's a good way to inform people and get them thinking about uh, praying for others. I, I don't mind that at all. But inevitably, when one of my friends posts that they have a prayer request, another one of my well-intentioned Christian friends will pop in immediately and comment with this next slide. Remember, God won't allow more to be put on you than you can bear. Is that what the Bible says? Heard that all my life. Probably buy that one at Cracker Barrel, I'm not sure. But, but what does the Bible actually say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Church, that is not the same thing. I'm going to tell you, 
The, ex, the, the opposite is actually true. God will 100% allow more to be placed upon you than you can bear. You know why? Because you're supposed to be relying upon Him and not you. Church, it's important that we know the Bible correctly. And the only way for us to do that is to spend time in the Bible regularly. We have to know the Bible correctly, and we can't do that without spending time in the Bible regularly. Are you? And if not, is it causing conviction in your life the way it did in the life of King Josiah? Are you tearing your robes, so to speak? Are you conscious of the Holy Spirit convicting you in this area? Church, is it time that you rediscovered God's Word? Now, our story is going to continue with Josiah and the rest of chapter 22. And we're not going to read all of that. But let me, let me just give you some background on the rest of chapter 22, and then we'll jump into chapter 23. When Josiah hears that the nation is bound for destruction, he wants to know if what he is reading is accurate. And so he sends some people to some of the prophets, some of God's people, and he says, go and find out for me, is, is it inevitable? Is it going to happen? Is the nation actually going to be destroyed? Word comes back from the prophets, yes, king, it's inevitable. The nation will be, will be destroyed. And we, and we know the nation is taken into captivity later. But he also hears this, but, O oh, king, because of your faithfulness, it won't happen in your lifetime. Now, Josiah's got a decision to make at this point, right? I, he, could, he could very easily have said, man, glad I dodged that bullet. Not my problem. Let's get on about the business of the country. That'll be somebody else's problem. He could have done that. He could have said, you know what, God? I hear you, and they deserve it. These hard-hearted people, you know how they are. They never listen, do whatever they want. So I, I, I hear you, God. I'll, just, I'll go about my business. I'll keep praising you and worshiping you, but do what you got to do. But Josiah doesn't do that either. So let's jump into chapter 23 and see how King Josiah actually responds to this news. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 1. The Bible says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar, and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. <clears throat> Church, nothing is recorded in the Bible by chance. Everything that's in there is in there for a reason. And sometimes when I'm studying, something catches my attention and I've got to try to track it down. And something in this particular passage caught my attention because it just, it, I don't know why it jumped out at me, but it did. And all I could think of when I read this passage was, why did he go stand by the pillar? Why is that in there? Why is that important? Why did God include that? And so I, I, it took me a while, but I finally did track it down. And... The only life experience I can think of, and this is not a, probably a great example, but the only life I can experience from my life uh, that kind of speaks to this was maybe an experience that some of you have had as well. 
when my mama would say, you just wait till your dad gets home. We knew that we were in trouble. And when dad would get home, sometimes he'd ask mom why we were in trouble. More often than not, he would just go ahead and discipline us and then ask her later what he had just disciplined us for. But when we, when we heard a certain noise, we knew we needed to stop and pay attention. Have any of you heard a leather belt coming out of belt loops? When we heard that, we knew that whatever dad said next was going to happen. He was done. There wasn't going to be any talking him out of it. There would be no compromise. Whatever came out of his mouth next was absolutely going to happen. That's the pillar. The people knew that when the king went and leaned against the pillar, whatever he said next was law. There, there was no debate. There was no talking him out of it. Whatever he said next was absolutely going to happen. And Josiah goes to the pillar and he leans against it and he tells the people, you've heard what the book said and I'm going to do it. I'm going to live it. We're going to, I'm following this. Who's with me? And the Bible tells us that the people, all the people joined in the covenant. Josiah was serious. He rediscovered God's word and it transformed how he lived. It brought such strong conviction in his life that he felt moved to share the word of God with all of the people. He made provision for the ones who were under him and under his care to hear the word of God for themselves. Now, this may not sound like a big deal to you, right? Like, you, you, can, you can open a Bible anytime you want to. I don't know how many copies you've got. I've probably got 15 in my office. And if you've got a mobile device on you, then you have access to the Bible. If, if you want to hear a sermon, you don't have to wait till Sunday, right? You can punch up David Jeremiah or, or Adrian Rogers or who, whoever it is that you want to listen to. But that's not the way it was back then. What's the big, big deal that Josiah wants to make the Word of God known to the people? Well, scholars tell us that at that time, the book of the law, which is all the Scripture they had, had not been read in the land for over 65 years. No one had heard anything from the Bible in over 65 years. That's an entire generation. And Josiah... The conviction of the Word and the Spirit was so strong upon him that he had to make God's Word known. These people would have access to its life-altering power. They were going to hear from God on a regular basis. Church, do we have that same conviction as King Josiah? When we are confronted with the Word of God, do we want to make it known? was reading an article by a man named E. Schuler English the other day, and he was talking about a gentleman named Michael Billister. Now, Billister was a Bible distributor. And I don't know if he was selling them or giving them away, but he was, he was going door to door with Bibles. Some of you may have had the same experience I had. <clears throat> Most of my education was supplemented by a, a stack of red Encyclopedia Britannicas that we had in our life because some guy with a suitcase came and knocked on our front door and convinced my mom that we would be the worst uneducated heathens ever if we did not have this, this set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. Door to door. People used to go door to door. There, there was no Amazon. 
There, there was nothing of that nature. People would actually come to your house and try to sell you stuff. We owned a Kirby vacuum cleaner for the exact same reason. Some guy knocked on the door and sold my mom a vacuum cleaner. That Billister's out in, in, in the, the late 30s, and he's in Poland, and he's in this tiny village, and he has one Bible left. That's it before he has to go home and restock. And so he takes this one Bible, and he, and he leaves it with one of those villagers, and, and he leaves. And the villager reads the Bible and is convicted by the Holy Spirit, and, and from reading the Word of God comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and becomes a follower of Christ. And church, we know, we know that the vast majority of people who, who come to a relationship with Jesus Christ do so because someone else shared the gospel with them. But we also know of people who just read the Bible and are saved. Because the Bible itself says what? It's the power of God unto salvation. This villager reads this Bible and comes to faith in Christ and is so overcome by this experience that he knows he can't keep that Bible. He has to give it to his best friend because this, this has changed my life and it's going to change yours. And he passes the Bible on. And that villager reads the Bible and gives his life to Jesus Christ. And this goes on and on and on until over 200 people in that little village came to faith in Jesus Christ because of that one Bible that had been left. In 1940, Michael Billister comes back to this tiny Polish village. And he finds out that the one Bible he left has had a legacy now of a church of over 200 people. They're having a worship service and they ask him, Mr. Billister, would you bring the word? And he said, of course, he's excited to do so. And he gets to the end of the service and what he would normally do at the end of the service is he would ask for testimony, Right? Does anybody have a word for God? That was part of my experience as a kid, pop, popcorn testimony. That's what he normally would do, but because of what had happened with his Bible, Billister instead said this, would anybody like to stand and share their favorite verse? And what you're hearing now is what he heard. Nothing. Crickets. And he's utterly confused as to what's going on. It's clear that the Word of God has, has worked in the lives of these people, and he's utterly astonished that, that no one is popping up to share their favorite verse. He's confused. He said they looked confused. And finally, one gentleman raised his hand and stood up and said, Mr. Billister, perhaps we've misunderstood you. Did you really want us to share a verse? Or did you mean verses or maybe even a chapter? Billister was blown away. He was totally unprepared for this. Because here's what had happened, church. The Word of God had become real in these people's lives. Their lives were changed and altered forever. They couldn't hold on to the one Bible they had. They had to give it to someone else so their life could be changed. But in order to keep the Word of God in their life, they began memorizing entire chapters and entire books of the Bible. Billister found that in that congregation, 13 people knew the entirety of the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, and they had memorized half of Genesis. Another person in the congregation had committed to memory the entirety of the Psalms. That single copy of the Bible given by Billister had done its work. Lives had been transformed formed. Lives bore witness to the power of the Word of God. Michael Billister felt the need to make God's Word known, and because of that, 200 plus people came to faith in Jesus Christ, and they wanted the Word of God so badly that they memorized 
entire books of the Bible. Church, do we want the Bible like that? Do we want the Word of God living in us like that? It's time. It is time that we rediscover God's Word. Well, church, we probably ought to finish the story of King Josiah. So let's jump back into the Scriptures. Chapter 23, beginning at verse 4. The Bible says, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah, and for the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. And he carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. And he bought, brought out the Asher from the house of the Lord outside of Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron and he beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. A rediscovery of God's word led Josiah to recognizing that what Israel was about was not what God intended for them to be about. And he set about changing the worship of Israel into something that God intended for it to be. He was no longer going to accept the traditions of the past. He would only accept what the Word of God said. He didn't allow the voice of human opinion to dictate what Israel did anymore. He focused upon the book of the law, and he focused upon what God said. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Israel was looking more like the people of God and less like the people. And I'm afraid that if our churches truly rediscover what's in God's Word, we might find that we don't always look a lot like the early church. Let me give you one example of what I'm talking about. This, this one hit home. When I got to Pleasant Hill um, over in Mount Vernon, in 2001, what I found was a church that was great at programming. I mean, they, they, were, they were fantastic. They, I would have put them up against any church in the state in terms of the, of the vacation Bible school they were able to produce. It's fantastic. I'd love to take credit for it, but they were already doing it when I got there. But they would show up and do Bible school, and they would high-five each other at the end of the weekend, and then they wouldn't see each other again until Sunday. You see, there was no, and here's the concept, there was no biblical community going on. If you look at the early church in, in the early chapters of Acts, they were living life together. They were in each other's homes. They weren't just showing up. I, first service, I started to say they weren't just showing up at a building. They didn't have a building. They weren't just showing up on Sunday and then seeing each other once a week. They were entwined in each other's lives. And so when I got to Pleasant Hill in, in 2001, they were celebrating their 150th anniversary. Now, you guys here at 10 Mile know a little bit about the longevity of a church. This church is older than, than Pleasant Hill. You don't, you don't change the culture in a church overnight. That culture got to where it was over 150 years. We weren't going to change it overnight, and it took about a decade. 
But I remember sitting, I remember sitting in my office, and I had started a small group, and every, we had one couple in that small group that was a part of the church, and everybody else that was in that small group had, had come since we'd started the group. And they, they kind of affectionately uh, referred to themselves as the island of misfit toys. Like, they, they brought a lot of baggage with them. And they, I'll be honest with you, they were my people. I, I loved being with them. So we started a Facebook page for the group, and I was sitting and working on a sermon one day, and I got a notification that someone had posted in that, in that group. And so I went to see what was going on, and we had a couple in that group that had two children, but the mom was the only driver in the group. Dad had a degenerative eye disease that caused the state of Illinois to declare him legally blind and tell him he couldn't drive. Now, I'm going to tell you, he was a farmer, and he could, he, could, uh, he could plow the straightest line you've ever seen. He had no trouble uh, you know, with the combine, but they wouldn't let him drive. Daughter had the same eye disease, also legally blind, couldn't drive, and then a younger son. And so she had popped in and said, hey, I, I, don't know, I don't know what we're going to do. Our son has to be at Rome grade school at 6 o'clock. Our daughter has to be at Centralia High School at 6 o'clock. And we have to deliver hay in Irvington at 6 o'clock. And I don't know what we're going to do. That, the, the hay was a part of their farm business. And before I could even respond, one of our ladies jumped in and said, we have to have our son at, at, at the same practice. We will pick, we'll pick Tate up. We'll take him to practice. We'll feed him uh, after practice before we bring him home. Somebody else jumped in and said, we're headed to Centralia. We'll take your daughter to Centralia. We'll just hang out in town until she's done, and we'll feed her too before we bring her home. You guys just go take care of what you need to take care of. And I'm going to tell you in that moment, sitting at my desk, tears started because they were finally getting it. They were living life together. They were, they were a biblical community. And I'm afraid that if, if as the churches, and listen, I hope, I hope that you're living life together. I hope that this is a biblical community. I really do. But I'm afraid if the vast majority of our churches in the United States begin to really explore the Word of God, they might find out that they don't look a whole lot like what God ordained in the early church. Church, it's time. It's time that we rediscover the Word of God. And even, even if you've read the Bible through multiple times, you know why they call it the living Word of God, right? Because I'll read a passage I've read a hundred times and God will teach me something new. It's time that we rediscover the Word of God. I told him a story in the, uh, in the first service, and this story um, it, it impacted me. It was several years ago, um, we, had this, we had this revival time at Pleasant Hill. Uh, our, pastor, our pastor left, and I was by myself. And I'll just readily admit, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And so we just, we just started doing as a church, evangelism and outreach, because I didn't know what else to do <laughs> at that time. And we saw this time of revival. And we were seeing guests not only on Sunday morning, we were seeing guests on Sunday night, like every week. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. But we got, we got to the end of a Sunday night service, and I looked around and I thought, this is, it's home week. There's no, there are no guests here. I know everybody. 
Everybody here is a member of the church. And I thanked God for my church family, and I prayed and I closed that service without giving an invitation. And as soon as I said amen and stepped down from, from the platform, right down the center aisle came Norma Schmidt. And when I saw Norma Schmidt coming down the center aisle at the end of a service, here's what this 35-year-old pastor knew. I did something wrong, and I'm in trouble. Now, Norma was not the type that loved to tell me when I was wrong. Norma was the type who loved me so well that I very early on gave her permission to speak into my life. Anything she told me was going to be told out of love and wanting to help me. She loved my family well. So when she came down the aisle, I adopted a posture of listening. And so she came down the aisle and she said, Pastor, may I speak with you? And I said, Miss Norma, you always know you can speak with me. And she said, do you know Brother Carl Watkins? And I said, yes, Carl was three pastors before me. Great man. She said, yes. Brother Carl was here on a Wednesday night and he looked up and he knew everybody in the auditorium and he decided he wasn't going to give an invitation and the Holy Spirit told him, you're going to give an invitation. So he gave an invitation. And a man walked the aisle who had been a member of our church for 20 years and finally got saved. And she said, you, Pastor, you don't know. Even if you think you know, you don't, you don't know. And she poked me in the chest and she said, don't ever do that again. And church, I have never not given an invitation since then. And today will not be the first day. Invitation times in Southern Baptist churches are interesting things. The invitation is simple. Respond to God. Whatever he's doing, respond to God. Listen, I don't, I don't want you or even care if you respond to anything I've said, but respond to his word. Respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. This morning, you may be here and there's some business you need to take care of with God right there at your seat. Respond. Maybe, maybe you recognize in, in the scripture that you haven't committed the time to God's word that you need to. Then commit that time to him and respond. Maybe it's something in your life that, that you haven't given up. That God wants to take from you, but you haven't given it up. It, am I the only one that's experienced that? That there's something in your life that, that God wants to take from you, but you won't give it up. Maybe this morning you respond and you commit that to him and let him take it from you. See, I don't know what it is. Maybe you need to gather some of the brothers and sisters around you and just have them pray with you or pray for you. Or, or maybe you need to stay in an intercession with them for someone else. Gather them around and pray. Listen, everybody's scared to death to move during the invitation, right? When I was, the denomination I grew up in, this was an altar of shame, right? So somebody would move and I would hear people whispering, well, I wonder what they did. Why? This is a place that you can come and spend concerted time with our Father in a posture of humbleness. There's nothing wrong with that. If you need to come to this altar and pray, you come. It's, it's okay to move during the invitation. It really is. I promise. If, if you need to make something right with a brother or sister, man, when we start this invitation, go find them. I don't care if they're even in the building. Leave the building. If God is laying upon your heart to make a relationship right, then you go do that. That's way more important than shaking my hand after this. Or maybe you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ for the first time. There is nothing that should remotely be embarrassing about that because church, every individual sitting in here was in that position at some point. Every one of us. 
And it doesn't matter if you're 8 or you're 80. It's not about your chronology. It's about what have you done with Jesus? Have you made him, have you put him in charge of your life? Have you received his forgiveness and, and repented? Which Have you just turned from your way to his way? Maybe you need to make that commitment today. You see, I don't know what God's doing in your life. My job is not to tell you what God is doing in your life. The only job I have in this particular moment is just to invite you to respond. I'll be down here if you'd like to pray with someone. I'd be happy to do that or, or gather the brothers and sisters around you. But church, God is faithful, and as he moves, will you respond? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for loving this congregation. Thank you, God, for the fact that, that they have been planted, maybe not in this exact location, but they have been in this area for a very long time delivering the word of truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. But God, this morning as your people are gathered, we know that you are doing something in their lives. And it may just be that you want them to be grateful and thankful. It, it could be something that simple or it may be something much more complex. I don't know and, and, and I don't need to know. What I do know, Father, is that your expectation of your people is that we respond. So in this moment, Father, you have your way. Help us to put aside our baggage and respond faithfully to you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Church, if you're able, would you stand with us?